So I'm going to be reading Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 33. If you're in the church, we're, you can use the Pew Bibles, the red Pew Bibles, it's page 829. If, you're in the, if you have the black Pew Bibles, it's page 1256. So that's Ephesians 5, 15 to 33. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another, uh, one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. So we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Speak to God. <clears throat> Good morning, church. Good to see you today. Good to read from God's word these verses. And just a follow-up from the message last week, as you left, you were told, or you went out with, with the fact that we are beloved children. We're reminded we are beloved children. Obedience is God's love language, both in Christ and in us. Christ refines, obedience refines, obedience is God's love language. We're going to continue looking at the Paul letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians um, through the end of chapter 5. And I want to just say there's a part of this everybody knows is very controversial. Many interpretation books have been written on it. I read a few of those this week, or parts of them. But um, often we don't realize that there's a runway before this plane takes off. And usually longer runways are good. Um, so we're going to, that's why we're starting at verse 15, because I think that this is very much connected with um, what we're going to talk about in 22 to 33, 
which most people like to jump into because there is a heading in most Bibles that says wives and husbands. But um, that, those, that, those verses are prefaced before with a, with a word that Paul uses in verse 15. In Greek, it's peripeteo. It means to walk or live, a, 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 a manner of life. And this is a favorite word of Paul, actually. This is the seventh time that he's using this word in this letter. And it is the last time. So you can often see Paul's, uh, he summarizes or he begins a new section with this word. In Ephesians 2, 2, he reminds the church that they used to peripeteo, live or walk, in the ways of the world, in disobedience to God. In chapter 2, verse 10, Paul declares that we are God's craftsmanship in order that we peripeteo, live or walk in union with Christ. That's the purpose of what we are made for. And, our, and through that, we can do good things that aren't our good things. They're already good things that he's already planned for us to do. So we could say that God actually has a to-do list written on each one of our hearts. He's crafted us to get his to-do list done. And learning what God's will for us is, figuring out what that to-do list is that God's given to us each day. In Ephesians 4, Paul starts a new section with peripeteo. He urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received as children of God, as um, God's people, I should say. And what's interesting about this is that he the backdrop to this is he's, I'm a prisoner telling you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We often skip over the fact that Paul spent a lot of time in prison and that that wasn't a good thing. Being a prisoner in an honor-shame society in the Roman world at the time was very shameful. You were branded as a criminal from then on the rest of your life. So here is, but he's not saying he's a prisoner of Rome. He's saying he's a prisoner in Christ, a prisoner because of Christ. Christ is the one who actually put him in prison, in a way. He's because of Christ, and he doesn't seem to be embarrassed to that at all. Instead, he makes his very bold statement that we should be walking, please walk in a manner worthy. He doesn't write to them, walk carefully so you don't end up in my position here in prison. You need to avoid this at all costs. So peripeteo, in a worthy manner. In Ephesians 4.17, later in that passage, he says that he affirms what he said in the beginning, the church must no longer walk as godless people do, who are hopelessly confused without understanding because they don't have the life of God in them. And then last week, the next two um, occurrences of peripeteo, living and walking, were in the first part of chapter 5. We are to walk in love as beloved children of God. We are to walk in the light as children of the light. So there's two clear ways to walk and live, love and light, obedience to God. Obedience is God's love language because we are defined and refined in the way we walk with Christ. So we start today with um, Paul's seventh appeal, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And he gives us a, a how and a means that we're gonna walk this wisely. So he says, walking wisely is important. Let us don't be foolish about everything we do. We need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And this is the, uh, uh, 
the Holy Spirit is being introduced now um, after we've woken up to the Christ, the Christ shining on us in the verse before this. So we, the how of, of walking wisely is making the best use of every opportunity because the days are evil. An opportunity is kairos here. It's the, it's the time, the right time for everything. And why? Because there's days of evil. Jesus even taught his disciples, pray um, not to be, um, deliver us from evil. And there is another way, the how of walking wisely is understanding the will of the Lord. And I said earlier, this is about understanding what his to-do list is for us. Because he's already figured out, he knows, he's made us to do certain things, and we just have to um, understand what his will is. That those are the how. The how is every, using every opportunity and knowing the will of the Lord. The means is by being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is really the center of this little section here, and that's why it's in the title. How do we get filled with the Spirit? Um, it's simple. We get filled with the Spirit. There isn't a lot of complication for this. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came down on people. After the day of Pentecost, the Spirit fills us. And we, we are sustained by that infilling. And, every, and this is how we can make use of those opportunities. We can understand the will of the Lord by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is in contrast to something else that we could fill our lives with, and that would be being drunk with wine. That's what he immediately compares the filling of the Spirit to, is being filled with wine in a way that you live in another reality. How would being filled with the Spirit in a state of drunkenness, not just, yeah, drunkenness would be the filling of, with wine. How are those similar? Well, drunken people are more talkative, they're more self-confident, they're uninhibited, more likely to take risks, and the alcohol slows down their motor functions. In Acts 2, this is exactly what the disciples were accused of doing when they came out onto the streets proclaiming uninhibitedly, uninhibitedly that the, the power of God. In fact, Peter, only a month and a half before that, had even denied to a servant girl that he didn't even know this man that people are talking about. Later, he, only um, a month and a half after that, he's preaching to the crowds um, the power of God. So he was filled with the Spirit. Um, now, this verse is very important. I mean, this draws a cultural, Paul is drawing a cultural um, comparison here because um, in Ephesus at the time, there was uh, Dionysus was worshipped as the god of wine, vegetation, fertility, festivity, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, and theater. So um, Rogers, in his article on the Dionysian background of Ephesians in this verse, he says that the cultic worship of Dionysus often involved wild and frenzied dancing, uncontrolled ravings, in connection with drinking wine and heated music. This activity was expected to induce Dionysus into the body of the worshiper and fill him with his spirit, so that the worshiper would partake of the God's strength and wisdom and abilities. The person was so affected, he would be able to speak inspired prophecy with poetic genius. One result of such a service was a feeling of release, a feeling of release from the pressures and, and stresses of drudgery 
in the day in day to day life. So Paul says the true believer should be filled with the Spirit and to do the opposite. So what does he say? He says that um, instead of sexy drinking songs, which you know, um, body songs, the, the Ephesian believers should be um, show evidence of their union with the Holy Spirit by speaking and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And he also gives two other ways that we know we're filled with the Spirit. But the first one, speaking and singing hymns, that's the sign of the Holy Spirit's filling. And we do this every week when we come together and in small groups during the week. And every time someone needs encouragement, what do we do? We speak words to them that are Holy Spirit filled. I hope that's what we are thinking about. Every time we're with another believer, we're sharing the same spirit, so we're using Holy Spirit um, worship among us. Um, the third thing that Paul says, so in, he says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Then he says, give thanks to God, the Father, for everything. And I guess a grateful life is the life that's filled with the Spirit. It just shows it's not, a, oh, I'm empty. I don't have anything. What we need is when we're ungrateful, when we don't see anything good, is get a little bit of more filling of the Holy Spirit and say, you're the one that can help me lead a grateful life. Without you, I'm, you know, this is a, there's way, to, the news in the world is horrible. Um, we need some Holy Spirit to bring back the gratitude in our life, thanking God. Um, the fourth sign of the Holy Spirit's working us is the Holy is the submission to one another in verse 21. Out of reverence for Christ. Now it's interesting that this sets this next passage up in a way that brings into one another and Christ right away. Why do we do this in reverence to Christ? And I think that um, this reminds me of the way that Jesus. Um, well, first of all, I should say something about the hupatasso, the, the submission here. This occurs when someone puts themselves under the authority of another or takes a subordinate place, something we don't like to do normally as human beings. Always think about an organizational chart. Think about where you work or in your family. Or What's the first thing we usually look at when we see an org chart? Where am I? Who's above me? Who's below me? Oh, no. Am I at the really the bottom? Who's at the top? You know, it's a race for the top. That's what Jesus' disciples were arguing about on the night that he was going to be betrayed. Who would be up top with Jesus? Because they figured that's where Jesus is going. We want to race up there, too. We want to get ahead of the other disciples. But Jesus said, sorry, guys, I'm not racing to the top. I'm racing to the bottom. I, he took up the towel. He didn't have to say a thing. In the middle of their discussion, he took a towel and started washing their feet. And they're shocked. Oh, we didn't think this is where you're going. He said, no. If you want to join me, you come to the bottom with me, and you serve each other. Um, <clears throat> so, so Paul says this is a sign of the filling of the Spirit when we engage in this race to the bottom. You first. How can I serve you? Um, there are many ways that hupatasso, submission, are used in the New Testament, and I just want to say that um, now that this is a, a big part of the Christian life is submitting. Um, what doesn't submit in Romans, sinful flesh, and those who refuse God's way. There are, you, it is possible to not submit. There will be a forcing of a submission, 
demons were made to, at that time, demons were made to submit to Jesus. All creation was subjected, submitted under God's curse. But usually submission is a choice, and we're commanded to submit to the following in all of the New Testament, to Christ, to God, our Heavenly Father. Um, Paul writes that we should submit to governing and ruling authorities. We should submit to earthly masters, church leadership, and in preaching, we need to submit the prophet, submits to the, um, their turn to speak. So even in, in, in our words, there's a submission of the gift of prophecies under the submission of the prophet to control themselves. The younger should submit to the elders. There's lots of times for submitting. Here we see submission uh, to one another, and then the rest of the passage actually continues how this happens. Um, so there are, um, from here to the end, until the armor of God at the end of this book, we have ways that Christ is at the center of this call out of reverence for Christ, is at the center of this call to um, submit to each other. There's three times of relationships we see. Wives and husbands, 22 through 33. Children and parents in chapter 6, and slaves and masters. That'll be next week's message. But we need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom to help us understand what the will, what God's will is for us as we look in these verses now. Chapter, verses 12, I mean, sorry, 22 to 33, there are three or four ways that this passage has been interpreted. And so I'm going to give you uh, briefly um, three of them and show you how four might be a way of pulling them all together. Um, a traditional view, a traditional view of this passage passage would argue that these verses are a significant statement in the New Testament of the place of marriage in God's plan. Although husband and wife are equal in creation in matters of leadership and authority, the primary commands to husbands and wives are different. The wife should be subordinate to her husband. The husband should love his wife. It's clear. The submitting to one another in verse 21 then is often interpreted as belonging to the section before this and doesn't connect directly to verses 22 to 33. What's missing in this might be the mystery of Christ in here. There's a lot of talk about Christ, starting with reverence to Christ. It, is it primarily, the question, is this primarily about husbands and wives, or is it about Christ and his church? The second um, interpretation of this passage would be the, would contrast the traditional view. It would say that, um, Although this may be read as a hierarchical view of marriage, at the time when Paul wrote it, it was cultural. And so it's now out of touch with our, our realities of our more um, egalitarian society. And um, so this would, what we need to, how we need to read this passage is with the original Christian ideal based on equality of all Christians and um, and see that all of these things have, all, all of the verbs in here, submit and love and respect, are done by both husband and wife. This is 
maybe overly focusing on husbands and wives again. This doesn't really say anything about why Christ appears so many times, Christ in the church appears so many times inside of a section that's addressed to husbands and wives. A third view of this passage is that there are no hierarchical views here at all. Um, the reading this passage should be that we see a functional arrangement with, there, there is no, we should not view marriage as a functional arrangement with rigid roles and fixed duties assigned on the basis of sex, but rather as a living relationship between two equal partners. Um, the, this position would argue that the pattern of husbands and wives presented in Ephesians 5 was intended not to exalt husbands to the position of gods or kings, but rather to draw our attention to the way Christ loved the church. Ephesians was written at a time when a message of female subjugation and male authority would not have been a new thing, so Paul would therefore not be challenging any status quo here. But what is new, and what Paul is writing here, is that the focus of attention in this passage is on the transformation of headship and subjugation in light of Christ's example. So this one really brings us to the point of saying, yeah, there, there is Christ in here, and we need to deal with this somehow. Is Christ just an example of how um, we mutually submit to each other? Um, I think this is getting closer, but um, there's, and the, all of these have valid meaning. There's a simple reading of this text. There are cultural um, values behind, uh, cultural values at the time that we do have to take into consideration that marriage was, you know, society was very different then than it is now. And we do have the example of Christ, but is it just an example? A fourth view, which I'd like to um, pull out a little bit today, and this isn't just mine. I got it from, and I can't remember the author right now, so talk to me afterwards, and I can get that to you if you want the book. It is re it's, the fourth view is that this passage, um, basically 15 to 21, is very connected with this passage, this whole passage of 22 to 23. And um, here, in, the, in 22 and 23, the the, relate, the marriage relationship is, a, is an um, analogy of the relationship of Christ and his church. Now, something about analogies is that the greater thing becomes, the, the lesser thing is compared to the greater, not the greater to the lesser. So, which would be Christ and his church would be the greater thing, and the husband and wife's marriage is the lesser thing. So, when we say something is analogous, we say the main point that we understand what Paul is writing about is actually Christ in the church and he's using marriage as an analogy of this mystery of how Christ and his church work together. So um, just to look at this passage now, we have two sections of this analogy. We could call it, they're kind of chiastic or we can just say a sandwich. So as David last week talked about the sandwich of his passage. There's two sandwiches in this passage today. The first one is the wife sandwich. The second is the husband sandwich. We're going to say that the wife are the two sides of the bread because you can see in each one of these, um, if you did the chart out, you can see they start with the wife, they end with the wife, and in between there's a core theological truth about Christ's relationship with his church. When you look at the, the husband sandwich, you see that there's... The husband is, is the bread, and the meat is there's a core theological truth about Christ and his church. 
So I'd like us to look at those right now. You would imagine, I should also say, if this is an analogy, basically an analogy, you would expect to find um, words like like, as, in the same way, just as, and we do. There are, you can, there's four times that we have um, the word like, as, os in, in Greek. There's three times that autos comes in the same way, and there's two times that kathos comes just as. So we actually have nine words in this passage that show that this is an analogy. Um, Christ, uh, Christ in the, um, and the husband, the church, and the wife. So first of all, the wife sandwich. Um, I'm just going to say, this is a passage about marriage, not about men and women, equality between, not about roles in the church. This is about marriage. And there's so many here that aren't married. So what do you do when you're reading a passage that doesn't, uh, that doesn't um, address your state, where you are in life right now? I think that's why the theological truth the theological meat in each one of these sandwiches is so important. So if you don't get the husband and wife, just go for the meat. You know, throw off the bread, too many calories, just eat the middle part of it. So wives, we see here we have the wife sandwich. We see a pattern here. There's an exhortation, then there's a comparison or an analogy, and then there's a rep repetition of the exhortation. The first bread says wives submitting to their husbands. Actually, in Greek, there is no submit here. And that's why I really think 21, I mean, um, yeah, 21, submitting to one another in, uh, in reverence to Christ. Wives to your husbands. That's basically what it says in Greek. We've put in the submit because the verb isn't repeated in verse 22. So wives to their husbands. And then at the end, it also says wives to their husbands in everything. Okay? So what is this submission mean? Now, that's a huge question. If you're a woman here and you've ever heard this passage before, the first thing you get stuck on is, what does submission mean? Does that mean that I wake up in the morning and just everything that I'm told to do, I'm just going to do? Any decision, I can't make any decisions. You know, well, how do I submit? This is the most strange thing that we're stuck with. So maybe men have no idea how that feels, but if you're a woman here, I'm sure you've thought about that before. How do we submit? Well, actually, it's quite interesting. The theological core of this is, as Christ is, the, first we'll start with Christ is the head of the church, being the savior of the body. This is the central core there, because that's something a husband isn't. So he's saying that there's analogy. Husbands are head. Christ is the head of the church. The real truth is Christ is the head of the church. Husbands are kind of imitating this. You know, this is the analogy. But husbands are not the savior of the body. That's Christ that does that. That's the central truth of this sandwich. So if you're just taking the meat today, just take the salvation part. And then he says, but as the church submits to Christ. Okay, there's the, there's the analogy that women, it's, submission is defined by the way the church submits to Christ. Okay, that makes really, that may, maybe that, it's even harder to understand. Maybe we can look at it this way. Um, the, when you wait, when you, how does the body submit to the head? Um, Christ is the savior of the body. The church submits to Christ. How does the, how does the church submit to Christ? If we understand this, do we do it all the time? Like, did we submit to Christ by coming to church today? Yeah, we showed up for worship. Do you show up in your marriage? 
Yeah, I'm here. I'm here, honey. I woke up this morning. I'm here. Um, how does the church submit to, the, to Christ? Um, we listen. We love Christ. We listen. We trust him. A lot of submission means trust. You trust that there's a good narrative here. There's something good coming from this. So I trust you. Submission is easy. I mean, submission is an undefinable thing. But trust in what you're saying to me right now, that's it. I try to please you. I want to follow you. Jesus, thinking about how we as a church, not just individually, submit to Christ, it, it is revelatory of how, not just an example, but it's an analogy of how this one relationship on earth that is the deepest relationship that we have can somehow we get power from to do that relationship because Christ is our Savior. That's the core truth here. And that we gather around something bigger than us. The one I missed, first of all, was the head. That's the other stickler here. So we have Christ is as a church. But the first one is, how is the husband the head of the wife? And there are three um, theological truths in these statements. Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of that body, which is the church. And the church submits to Christ. So these three are true for everyone in this room. Whether you're married or not, Christ is our head. What does that mean to have a head? He, The head just batters the body, right? No. The head tells the body all the time what we're doing. Well, maybe, but the head is attached to the body. I think that's the simplest thing here, is that a body needs a head, and a head needs a body. And earlier in Colossians, it actually says that Christ fills all, and we are the fullness of Christ. That's amazing. The church is the fullness of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is known by his body. The head needs the body. And the purpose of incarnation is that this body and head get connected to each other. The purpose of marriage is that connection that later on we're going to see is a mystery that nobody can quite figure out how two people can live together with that closeness. Um, the church submits to Christ because of the headship of Christ. Um, so let's look at the so the two parts of the sandwich. Women, um, wives submit. Wives submit in everything. But the way they do that, that's the bread. The core of the sandwich here is that's just an analogy of what Christ is doing in us right now. Um, as the head, as our savior, and as the church, we submit to Christ. Husband sandwich. It says, love your wives. So we start with love. We end with love in verse 23, 33, actually. Inside of that, it, let's just walk through this a little bit. Paul addresses husbands. It seems straightforward. It seems simple. Wives submit. Husbands love. But this is too simple, even in marriage. We don't wake up in the morning trying to figure out what does that mean to submit? What does that mean to love? I would take us back to the wedding ceremony if you were married. You promised that you would love and um, each other for the rest of your life. The pastor never tells the man, you need to love. Don't worry, wife, you don't actually need to love. Because I couldn't find anything in the scripture about that. 
you know, we don't just have love on one side of a marriage, and neither is there submission on both sides of a marriage because you have to get along with each other. It is a living relationship. Um, at, some of you went to uh, Renee and Daniel's wedding. It was an Orthodox church in Salem. And one of the special things that Orthodox marriage does is they put martyr's crowns on the married couple. And it's a martyr's crown is what they call it. Because every morning you're going to get up and you're going to say, I lay down my life, my desires, and I'm putting you first. And um, they wear martyr's crowns. It's beautiful. I thought, wow, I, I'm thinking about that in the morning. When you step out of bed, um, this isn't about me. This is about um, mutually submitting to each other. That will help a lifetime, a marriage last a lifetime. Um, this analogy for husbands then to love your wives um, is not the main thing, but it's the core, the meat here makes that love, it, it, it just comes out. And Paul actually just goes on and on about what this love is because he immediately puts that love of Christ into focus. Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, cleansing her with the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church in splendor to himself. Negatively, there's no spot or wrinkle. Positively, she will be holy and blameless. And then the second bread is husbands love your own wives. And then Paul goes into an explanation of what that kind of love means. Um, Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. We get sanctified. Marriage also is the most sanctifying thing out there. So never in our lives, there's two things that happened that made Rob and I have both said. We've, we're sanctifying. First was getting married, then having children. And by then you're just like weak and imperfect before God and say, I need you way more than I ever have needed you before. Yeah. Um, presenting Christ with, uh, I mean, Christ presents a church without spot or wrinkle, and there's only holiness and no blame at the end. So how do um, husbands love? This bottom bread is a little bit bigger. It says because, um, he says, to nourish and says um, to nourish. Nourish uh, like they nourish and, cher um, and keep themselves. In this illustration, the wife ought to love their wives. It is striking in that Christ, there is one point of comparison between Christ and the husband. That's only love. And everything else is just about Christ here. So Paul is not suggesting that the husband's headship in, is in every respect comparable to Christ. Indeed, in these verses, we observe that Christ's love surpasses any love that a husband could even give his wife. So again, it is the, the analogy of Christ and his church that becomes the focus of these verses. And the love that husbands show their wives is just the bread that holds this theological meat in the sandwich. Um, in Christ's relationship with the church, um, man and women are, this relationship is a deeper meaning. So Paul immediately goes into a quotation of Genesis 2.24, just out of the blue. In those days, people would know the, the, the place where that comes from. And we've often been confused in our Bibles, say, why in the world all of a sudden is a man leaving his father and mother, being united to his wife, and the two becoming one flesh? What does that have to do about um, love and submission? And in fact, this isn't 
Paul says this is a profound mystery. Whenever there's a mystery, that means we didn't understand this before. Now we understand it. The theological core of this one is that there's a mystery here in marriage that we have not been able to understand until now. And he said it's the same way that Jesus left his father in heaven and came to hold fast to his bride, even dying for her, the church. But he has, in order to be united with his bride, he has left everything and his father to become one flesh with us. So the, Paul says the main verse in Genesis 2, 24, is not about the first marriage. It's not about Adam and Eve. That verse in Genesis 2.24 is because that's what Christ is going to do with his church. And that's even earlier than the 3.16 verse that says there's going to be a, um, the serpent will be crushed. So you might say that the very first reference to Christ in the Old Testament is Genesis 2. Um, Genesis 2, what was verse 3? 24. This is what's going to happen. And marriage is only an analogy of what Christ is going, how much Christ is going to love his church and do this for his church. So in conclusion, we have submission, respect, and love. Those come in the last verse. However, when Paul kind of comes out of his, wow, I just had a, you know, this vision. And he comes out of me and says, but in conclusion, love. Um, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your um, husbands. You know, he, you can see he's reversed it. This is the big sandwich here. Um, maybe wives go first, husbands next. You know, make this a mutual thing you're doing among each other. And the, the core of this, in between this section, is two theological truths. Christ is the head of the church. He's their savior. In the next chapter, we're going to see that the head has the helmet of salvation and the body has the breastplate of righteousness. The head it gives salvation. The righteousness is what the church does. Um, the acts, the will of God, those individual acts that we do every day is Christ's righteousness in us and through us. And then the theological core of the um, of the husband sandwich is that Christ loves the church, gave himself up for her, and we, can, we, we are sanctified by this. We're cleansed. We're washed. We will be presented without spot or wrinkle, without hol in holiness and blamelessly. We walk wisely. We walk with, filled with the spirit. So as we leave for this week, the core thing is that Christ is our head in all relationships, whether you're married or not. Christ is the head, and he is sanctifying us, and he's using our relationships to do that sanctification in us. So let him do his work through in our marriages and in our sanctification. Dear Lord, thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to help us because we can't do this. And the mystery of what you have done for your church, let it be in our hearts. Uh, um, something that we seek out, that each of us seeks out first, so that it will spill over into our intimate relationships, in the marriages in our church, 
in the way we submit to each other in this church, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.